it's not all for nothing if you have the spirit for it because you're never going to forget those experiences and you're going to be able to apply that to what even if you don't succeed in the way you intended to you'll always be able to apply that to whatever you wind up doing the group was very quick to point out that that isn't the goal like that's not why you get hired you don't get hired to sound you know to fill the shoes of somebody else they were like we want you to sound like you like i'm very fortunate, lucky, proud, all of those emotions. And they're really, really, really strong. And they were the most strong emotions I had until having kids. And it literally trumps that by so much that I, I don't even know how to put a number value to it. What, a thousand times better? I don't know. It's that much better. My name is James Newcomb, and I love stories. Stories make you happy. They make you sad. They make you angry. They make you glad. But most importantly, they make you think. That's what this show is all about. It's called Nucambio, and it begins now. Imagine this. You're playing baseball for the minor league affiliate of the New York Yankees. You're a professional baseball player, but you're young, you're wet behind the ears, and you're inexperienced and ignorant enough to believe that you can do anything. Then one day, you get a phone call. You've been called up to the major league club the New York Yankees, and you're the starting pitcher in the playoffs, and you're pitching tomorrow. Chris Coletti can relate to this. In 2009, Chris was a young trumpet stud at the Juilliard School. He had just won an audition with a small-town orchestra and was brimming with confidence in his budding career as a professional musician. Then he got the call. The Canadian brass one of the most esteemed and recognizable ensembles in the world of classical music needed a trumpet player, and they wanted him. Of course, he answered the call, and there he was, thrust into the spotlight, headlining performances at tiny, little-known venues such as Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, Lincoln Center, to name just a few. Some of the best and most accomplished trumpeters of our time preceded Chris in this role. What big shoes to fill! Suddenly, he had the pressure of performing at a very high level on the biggest stage possible in his world. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I could do that at that age. I think the pressure would be too great for me. I suppose one could be forgiven for thinking such things. But on the other hand, you probably don't weed out potential life partners by singing operatic soprano arias and whistling violin partitas written by Johann Sebastian Bach. These are just a couple of Chris's many talents outside of playing the trumpet and is one of the reasons he'll never pay for another drink in his life. So 24-year-old Chris Coletti answered the call, and boy, did he deliver. In addition to adding operatic soprano singing to the Canadian Brass's bag of crowd-pleasing tricks during his tenure, which lasted 10 years, he composed and arranged pieces, delivered one dynamic performance after another. And now, 10 years older and wiser, Chris has decided it's time to step away from the Canadian brass. Why? Because in 10 years, his situation, his perspective, his priorities have changed. He's now a husband and a father. The glories of his role with the Canadian brass were increasingly a stark contrast with the realities of parenting, his responsibilities in the home. It was simply time to step aside and make room for another person who is better equipped to carry the group into the future. 
What you're about to hear is the story of an individual who has given his heart and his soul to his craft. Chris can tell you what will emotionally move an audience of musical civilians and also what will move an audience of musical aficionados who are trained to nitpick every move that they hear. And you might be surprised to hear that it's really the same thing when you get right down to it. And now that he has moved into a new chapter of his life, you'll hear about the decision to step away from a role that was glorious and deeply fulfilling on many levels and into another role that is dirty, exhausting, inglorious at times, but right where his soul has him to be at this moment. You should check out Chris's blog at trumpetchrisblog.com. Hey, everybody. I am thrilled to bring on to the show someone who has been a friend of mine for a few years now. I've actually interviewed him on some of my podcasts that were more music-based in years past. And uh, But we're going to, of course, we're going to talk about music because he's a professional musician. But uh, he sent an email to his uh, list of subscribers, of which I am on that list. And it just really uh, spoke to me in a very um, powerful way because he was, the, the purpose of the email was twofold. It was to announce that he was stepping down from his position in uh, one of the <clears throat> most well-regarded chamber ensembles in the world, but he was very specific with his intention as to why he was stepping down. He was stepping down because he wanted to focus on his job or his role, whatever you want to call it, as a father and as a husband. And just uh, being that intentional and that specific with his um, purpose for stepping down uh, or, or kind of stepping away from that by all accounts, at least from my perspective, is a prestigious job. I, it really spoke to me in a very powerful way, and I and I thought this is a terrific story. And uh, what better way to get a, get my new podcast off the ground than a great story like this? So I don't know, Chris, if I should say welcome back to the show because this is a new show. Well, it's good to be back on this brand new show. Can good I say to be that? Back on the brand new show. It's good to be back with me, but you're on this show for the first time. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks. I know that people listening, um, you know, previously they're they're pretty well acquainted with Canadian brass and the trumpet world and music world, but I th- I hope or I get the hunch that some people listening to this may not be familiar or they not may not have the slightest clue of what you do or even how to hold a trumpet. So I, I don't know, just give us a little overview of, of you, what you do, what the Canadian brass is, what a brass quintet is, and we'll go from there, man. Yeah, sure. Um, I've spent a lot of time trying to think about the my elevator pitch for what the group really is, and it's actually quite hard. But, but really, I think the best way to sum it up to someone that doesn't know is it's a, it's a brass quintet, which, believe it or not, that's actually a thing, kind of. And they've been around since the 70s, and they've gotten very well known for playing um, the most famous classical pieces, but for that ensemble and presenting them to generally a non-musician audience. There's, of course, a ton of musicians that are our audience, but the bulk of them are not professionals, and they're probably people that um, often were exposed to classical music 
for the first time through the group. So they're, they're popularizers of classical music in some ways. Um, so as you can imagine, it was a huge thrill to be doing that for 10 years. Um, as a conservatory student, you're, as with any specialty, you're primarily surrounded with people that share your expertise. And for a group like that, you, you were sort of forced to have this perspective of what it's like to listen to music as somebody that isn't a conservatory, you know, grad. And I think that that was actually one of the group's strengths is that we had that constant feedback from like, you know, what, what in the, in the music world we call real people, <laughs> like normal people that are not specialists. Right. Yeah. Yeah. studied all these, um, composers. So civilians, civilians. Thank you. I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. So unbelievable musicians and um, a lot of really unbelievably creative uh, ideas that are that are allowed to be expressed and encouraged in that group. Well, you made some pretty significant contributions to it during your time with the group. Thank you. I guess I mean with was- like uh, arrangements and opera singing. That was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it was unheard of before you came along. That's true. I, so those that don't, I, I have a very high, well, you can probably hear that I don't have a particularly low voice, but when I speak, but I have an operatic um, singing voice that is not only uh, been pretty fun to use on stage, but that's how I met my wife. Singing opera? Well, we met at a gig, okay. not Canadian brass related, and in the show afterwards, uh, in the, in the, in the, in the meal afterwards, I did my mating call, which at the time was I sang the Queen of the Night aria. For those that don't know it, it's a very, very famous, very high aria from uh, an opera by Mozart. And apparently uh, she was very impressed. And so then I, I pulled out my second move, which was that I whistled the E major partita, the third violin partita by Bach. And that's another piece <laughs> that if you don't know, it's worth Google. It's very beautiful. Bach actually used it many times in his life. That was his kind of the last version of it, and um, and that's how we met. Wait, you si- you sang the Queen of the Night aria, correct? The whole thing? Well, the high part. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing is high. What are you talking the about? The whole thing is high, but it, yeah, it goes up to that. My voice has since changed since I've had my my two boys. My voice wow. has dropped slightly. Unfortunately, it doesn't reflect in my speaking voice, um, but. Can you hear me? Okay, there's a huge lawnmower passing by. Oh, it's fine. It's it's all it's all good. I mean, I can I can sort of hear it, but it doesn't sound like a lawnmower. It just sounds like this little hum. Okay, great. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I, I, so I can't sing it anymore, but I can whistle it for you. Can I do that for the audience? Let's let's hear it. I would sing that at a bar or whatever, and that, that's how I would sort of eliminate the woman that would or wouldn't be interested in me. What was your like career aspiration before you got the Canadian brass gig? Well, as a young trumpeter, I always wanted to be a soloist, and then um, through school, you know, through conservatory, I realized that that you know, a trumpet soloist doesn't really doesn't really exist as a full time job, especially in the states. And I really fell in love with orchestral literature, and I just like most conservatory brass players just saw that as the kind of like the thing to strive for. 
And um, I'm actually in Alabama right now, in Huntsville, Alabama, which is because I'm playing with the symphony here. And my first job, my first successful audition was to win the principal trumpet job here. And it was just like a dream come true. I was still a student. I was in my second year of my master's at Juilliard, and I won this position, and it was a huge confidence boost. And I came to know the orchestra is like, even though they're not super well-known, they're unusual in that they fly people in for the orchestra. So it's sort of got this... Uh, sort of unusual clout for a, a relatively small town and a small city and people from all over this the country come and play and they do huge rep and the, we always we have an incredible music director and we had one then as well and um and I thought that was it and then less than a year later I joined Canadian Brass and suddenly the orchestral thing be- kind of got a back seat fortunately my contract was such that it allowed for that and they were very uh, willing to let me sort of play what I could, and I'm glad also that I didn't wind up leaving the group, which is something that I've, I'm, I'm sure was probably in the back of people's minds, wondering why I wouldn't just quit this orchestra job. But anyway, so now I'm back and I'm doing all the concerts. How many concerts per year? It's about fourteen. So oh, okay. It's not so a lot. yeah, yeah, it's kind of part time. Kind of part time and a perfect complement, you know, to people that have a teaching job or anything else. Actually, right. our bass trombone player until a few years ago was the also the principal bass trombone player of the New York City Ballet. Oh, wow. It was a totally, you know, much more busy season, and he was still able to make it work for a, for a while. Well, it's got to be a boon for the Huntsville Symphony. Who's ever heard of the Huntsville Symphony Orchestra? They've got a member of the Canadian Brass as one of their trumpet players. It's good publicity yeah. for him. I hope so. I, I hope <laughs> well, that, that was... As was long possible. as you represent yourself well. Right. I hope that and that might be one of the reasons I didn't get fired, even though I was barely here for the last 10 years, but I'm back now. So I'm, I'm really glad that they were very, they were very supportive of that, um, of me accepting that position when it happened. And so I'm glad that I get to come back and, you know, give them the time that I basically always had been promising. I, I, I've always wanted to know what's life like at Juilliard. So it's hyper focused, you know. You know, they don't tell you this. It's, but it's more like trade school. Like I didn't go to, uh, I've never been to school for welding, let's say. But like when you go to school for welding, there's you're not taking um, history classes as much as you are really focusing on all the skills and knowledge that are going to make you really good at that skill. And so Juilliard is basically that, and you're learning a lot of things, but it's all to make sure that you are equipped to work and as a musician and, and and nowadays at least when i was there and i think it's still the case specifically how to win an orchestral audition because that was sort of the goal of most of the people there and um and it's very heavily uh weighted so that that's what you spend your time doing so it's like one there's like one uh destination is that it's an orchestra for a trumpeter, that's basically the, I mean, that's sort of your only path. I mean, unless you make up your own path, which is becoming more of a thing that universities are, are teaching because it, it's you, you, it's sort of become something that we've been denying as a, in, in institutions, but you have to make your own path. There is no path. I mean, winning an orchestral audition job is is like having uh, going to school to get into the NBA. You might. But if you don't, then that's the only and that's the only training you have that you're not really set up for success outside of that one narrow goal. So entrepreneurship skills are super important. And I think they're starting to teach that there. Yeah, there's definitely a demand for it. But I, I watch I follow sports a lot 
and I, I I like to watch the scores and standings and everything, but I get really intrigued by the stories, and uh, especially like the NFL. Uh, what what really uh, strikes me is, like you said, there's one destination. You put all of your eggs in one basket, and if you screw up one time at the like the scouting combine, or you 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 screw something up in a game, that's it. And it's like all of that work is for nothing. I mean, you can lose your you can lose that gig in a heartbeat. And and where do you go? There's there's no there, you don't you can't be an entrepreneur, NFL <laughs> player. You know, <laughs> it's hard to imagine how you'd make that work. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the most successful entrepreneurs always surprise people with how they're able to make connections between specialties, but. Um, you probably, if you're into sports, and I'm not a huge sports fan, but I heard a podcast that interviewed an NFL player that was back in the days when they had a person on the team that was called a beater. Is that the right term? And they were basically their purpose was to like beat up their the other team's best players, and they were just these big, huge guys that weren't necessarily great at hockey. They were just huge and like good enough, and so they had. Um, for the, and I'm going to screw all the terminology up, so please correct me. But um, when they have like the the All Star Game, when they just pick the best people from all the teams, you know, they have an audience vote. But it, I guess it's probably obvious at this point they don't really listen to what the fans want. They, you know, people in the NHL actually choose their the people that make the most sense or that think they're going to sell the most tickets. But um, this time, people decided to be funny and recommend this guy, this huge guy that was like not even good at necessarily good at playing hockey never scored a goal in his life you know but massive beat everybody up kind of thing and he got all the votes because people thought it was funny and it became this huge ordeal but so this this sounds like you don't know the story no i've never heard this story well it's worth it's worth checking out they did they did it on um i think it was radio lab and he he winds up getting uh getting onto this like all-star team and winds up skinning scoring the two winning, the two only goals, which were the win goals, and the and the that team won. It's an amazing story and uh, totally defied the odds. And he's one of these kids that like he obviously was really good at hockey, especially in this local town. But he wasn't Wayne Gretzky either. Yeah, right, right. And so I think that any reasonable person would probably have told him not to put all of his eggs in that basket. And he found his way in making some unusual connections with the type of skills and body type and all that that he has. So I would advise anyone that's young, like if you, if you have the spirit for it, you should always go for that home run goal because it's not all for nothing. If you have the spirit for it, because you're never going to forget those experiences and you're going to be able to apply that to what, even if you don't succeed in the way you intended to, you'll always be able to apply that to whatever you wind up doing. Yeah. I, I, I hear the word specialization running through my mind and uh there's a real power in specializing in one thing something that kind of irks me about people who are peddling entrepreneurship for musicians is this idea of uh what do you call it diversify expand your skills into more than one thing and i think that just kind of kind of weakens you as a as a musician it weakens your product if you if you are the specialist at playing brass quintet and you're the best at it, then who's the Canadian brass going to call? But if you like diversify so that you can just take any gig that you can, 
I, I think that you're weakening yourself. I think there's a lot to be said about being that one trick pony and being the very best at it. I mean, diversification has its merits. It it lowers risk, but it also caps your yeah. how high you can climb. I mean, Elon Musk, imagine if he diversified his investments, you know, according to the Swenson model or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. I mean, he wouldn't have a space program. He wouldn't have bought Tesla. He wouldn't have start been one of the co-founders of PayPal. You know, there's a lot of things he wouldn't have done. That those are not diverse those are not paths that somebody that wants a diverse investment strategy right. would do. Right. He went all out and he's that guy, he's an extreme case, but you could think of a million of them. Yeah. Um I think at a certain age if your priorities shift, you know, you might want to consider doing something that's safer, but I don't know. I'm not, I don't think I'm at that age yet. So I shouldn't be advising what people should be doing at a certain age that I'm not at. Okay. Let's make a little disclaimer here. This, this podcast is not intended to be legal advice or career advice for anyone, musician or non-musician. Let's just get that out there. All right. Well, okay. So you're in this hyper-focused environment. Um, if you're doing recitals or concerts at Juilliard and you're like playing for the choir, What's it like in that environment versus like your first gig with Canadian Brass where the audience is like civilians when it comes to music? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's that's one of the weird shifts that um, it, it smacks you right in the face because as, as a as when you're when you're a trumpet player at Juilliard with some of the best trumpeters and your teachers are trumpeter and all your friends are trumpeters and your audience is trumpeters, you know, or friends of trumpeters. Yeah, how. How could you not worry about the technique more than the audience? The audience doesn't know what's hard in anything. They don't really care. Only a specialist is going to – like let's take the the welding example again. Like somebody that's truly good at welding, they might look at a, a, like an old bridge or something and just admire the, the, the skills that went into it. But to a normal person, you want a couple of things and they're very simple. A, you want the bridge not to break. You want to trust. You want to be able to trust that they did their their research and that it's engineered properly, so you can drive over it safely. And a bonus would be that it looks super cool because it's a pretty massive structure, and you don't want it. And you, it's going to last hopefully a really long time. You don't want it to look horrible. That's it. No one really cares if the person that's welding it has like the greatest technique or the They just want it to be like just do it, you know. And it's the same thing with a musician. And, and a lot of times in music school. If you are a musician, I'm sure you could probably admit that you're guilty of hyper focusing on your on your technique. And when you get into the real world, you need to somehow use all that practice and continue to work on your technique, but get past it so that the audience doesn't just hear a show and tell. It's not just look at all this stuff I practice. You're actually communicating a message, and you're actually able to move them. If you're not able to uh, elicit an emotional response from people, even if it's a negative one, if you're not able to get some emotional response from people, then the technique is, is literally useless. So that's that's the difference, I think, that it's almost impossible, even though our teachers say those things, to really believe it until you've experienced it. So if you're at Juilliard, what gets an emotional response from your classmates, your teachers? Is it like brilliant technique or is or is it what I'm asking is it like is it basically the same thing communicating a message to them or the lay people The irony of what I'm saying is it actually is the same thing but it's easier to get lost So if you're having an audition let's say a mock audition for you know a, a, a pretend orchestra the winner 
is going to be the person that moved the judges the most. Well, what moves the judges? Well, somebody that's able to make you in an, in, an, in an orchestral audition, for those that don't know, you're completely blind from the uh, the judges. They don't see you and you don't see them. You're li- there's literally a curtain separating you. They do this so that there's as little biases that affect their decisions and their listening as possible. And you're playing a small, especially as a trumpet player, a very small section of a huge work where the trumpet part is usually very insignificant in, in terms of a large scale piece, but it feels significant and you're suddenly playing it by itself. And it's sort of the equivalent of a kicker in football. It's a pretty Im- important part, but like in the grand scheme of things, the amount of time that goes into those moments is almost none, nothing. And your job is just to come in and nail it. Now, if you, if you can give the judges who know these pieces really well the sensation that they're listening to the full piece and you get their imagination going so they hear the full orchestra while you're playing, you will have a much better chance of winning. You almost can't win if you don't do that. As opposed to the person that is hyper-focused on technique, what winds up happening is then they listen to your technique and then they start noticing all sorts of imperfections. So I'm sure that there's parallels with all sorts of in so many different ways, um, in so many different fields, rather. But so for the for an orchestral audition, the challenge is to be such so solid technically that you're able to move the judges who just heard a million people play the same thing. And instead of hearing whether it was slightly better than person A or B or C, it reminds them of the real orchestra piece, which is what made them want to be musicians in the first place. And you know what? That's the person we need. And that's how you win. That's interesting. You have to master the technique. You get it down so much that you're not even thinking about the technique. And then you're concerned with, I don't know, fooling the judge that they're like listening to the entire orchestra or making them believe that they're listening to the entire orchestra. Right. You want to get their imaginations just going. Wow. Um, you know, it's, it's actually super similar to figure skating in okay. the Olympics because okay. like orchestral music, it's really an art form that started as an art. And you can make it into a sport like they did with figure skating. Thankfully, that isn't really the case with orchestral trumpet yet. But it's yeah. close. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very close. But, um, you know, you're watching a beautiful performance. And as a, as a non-professional, you'll watch somebody skate and you're just like, oh, my God, that was unbelievable. How, I mean, not only is it technically completely impressive, but it was beautiful. But the judges are like, well, you know, their ankle was a little twisted on that landing. That's negative five points, you know, and that that goes against them. But you'll see it. And it's not not common. But when somebody puts on such a beautiful performance that even though that little technical blip is there, it almost goes unnoticed because it didn't affect the performance negatively. Now, it's the analogy breaks down here, though, because they purposely separate those as separate categories that get weighted a certain way for the Olympics and figure skating. And it's not really quite so formulaic with orchestral trumpet. You know, I've sat. So one of the things that people get eliminated for is having bad time, for example. Like there's a weak sense of pulse. So especially nowadays, there's a lot of music that is beat-based, so we get used to having a very solid beat so that if if the beat's not good – Maybe if you're not a musician, you may not know why it doesn't feel right, but it's not going to feel right. And once you hear it feeling right, you're going to be like, that's the one. And I, I've seen, I've been behind the screen as a judge listening for somebody and deciding who's going to get the job. 
and there's you know six different people. And by the way, there's only one of them that's a trumpet player. It's the principal, and usually then there's the conductor and the violinist and an oboist and a harpist and a piano, whatever. All these different people that don't really know these trumpet parts as well as the person playing thinks. And they'll do something like tap with their finger to see if the pulse is really that good. And right away, if they think they need to do that, it's not good enough. And that's that's the sort of irony. And I've seen this happen where there's four different people. They're all tapping to, to rate in their own minds the time of the person playing. And I'm watching. They're all tapping completely different. And one person's like, time is horrible. You know, X doesn't go on to the next round. And the other person's like, their time is flawless. Absolute pass. It was the most perfect performance. And they're literally they're listening to the exact same thing. And so the people that win, though, have such a convincing sense of time that – the, you don't even feel the need to like when you're listening to a good beat, you're not like, let me see here. One and two and three. No, they're not subdividing. You know, you don't even think about it. It just makes your body want to move. And that's sort of what you're trying to do. Not just a beat, but the entire yeah. orchestra. So if you're like with the Canadian brass and you're playing for civilians when it comes to music, how, how important is technique? Because like you just said it a couple of minutes ago, like if, if even if you're not a musician, you know, if the music is on and you know, if it's not on, so how's, how important is that technique? I mean, is it basically the same thing? You've ha- you got to have that technique down so that you can communicate the music? It's sort of both because on one hand, the, the technique is one aspect of what makes a performance very powerful. So traditionally, the trumpet parts have always been very flashy because they're sort of, that's just sort of the way the treble part tends to be. So in those position, in, in those moments, the, the technique has to be really perfect. But on the other hand, as a group that you know designs their own programs, you want it, you can choose to choose uh, to perform music that makes you sound your best, and that's what every group should do. But a lot of the times, groups choose music that they think they should play, and they wind up playing something that is just not making them sound as good. I mean, who who wouldn't want to play a piece that sounds harder than it is and it happens to highlight your strength, your personal strength? The audience can tell that you're just, you're not even trying hard. It's just like coming off and, they, and it hits them like a blur, like, oh my gosh, how'd they do that? You know, as a, and then here's where the, the analogy with figure skating is different because it's not a sport. You're not listening to five trumpet players in a row, one after the other do the same triple axle and then you're judging the minutiae. The nice thing about a Canadian brass concert is that we're like, you know what? This particular iteration of the ensemble sounds awesome when they play Toccata and Fugue in D minor. The trumpets sound hot. The tuba sounds great, whatever. Let's play that. And then people hear it and they're like, whoa, they're not comparing it to, well, last night I heard it, another group play that piece. And, you know, so there's, um, in that sense, the pressure is taken off because although the techn- technique is so important, it's not the, it's not the sole, uh, focus of a non of a non-musician to be listening for and i shouldn't say non-musician a non-professional musician to be listening for they just want to they came to the concert to be amazed yes yeah. they want that emotion as opposed to a judge of, of a competition where you're you have to choose a winner and a loser yeah well they have different expectations different expectations different so the audience they they're not judging anything they just want a nice experience a nice evening out Right. The judges, they want perfection or as close to it as possible. Right. Or best. They want best. 
Hey, sorry for the quick interruption. I just want to give you a little background about me and this show. How is it that it came to be known as Nucombio? Well, my website is jamesnucom.io. So if you take out the dot, then it says James Nucombio, and that's just the name of the shows, Nucombio. So the website is jamesnucom.io. If you're enjoying this podcast, then I encourage you to subscribe to the show. If you are a trumpet player and you are tuning in because you recognize the name Chris Coletti, I have another show that might be of interest to you. It's in the works. I don't know that it's going to be ready when I publish this episode with Chris, but it's called The Trumpet Jungle. It's going to be focused on all things that relate to trumpet, trumpet careers, performing careers, trumpet uh, pedagogy, technique, etc., etc., etc. So if you'd like to know more about me, this podcast, the Trumpet Jungle podcast, and subscribe to each one, then just type in checkoutmypodcast.com. It'll give you all the information that you need. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Chris. So I, I, I want to talk a little bit about your career with the Canadian Brass, and specifically, I, I, want, I want to ask, how has your perspective changed in the last 10 years? Like, when you, when you won the job, you were 25, 26 years old. Now you're, what, what are you, 36 now? 35, 36? Yeah. 34. I start, yeah, so I started when I was 24, which is... Pretty I was, young. I was pretty young, and it was, I, was, I was feeling the heat. <laughs> say that. Describe feeling the heat. I mean, it was like, I felt like a kid suddenly thrown to the major leagues. It was, um, even though looking back, I had a pretty, uh, straight trajectory. Like it was as traditional as a music path goes. I went to a music arts high school. I went to LaGuardia, the movie fame. If you've never seen it, there's a song from the movie fame. I want to live forever. You know, and I'm um, actually, I'm in the new DVD version. They like pan the orchestra. I was a student. I'm in the orchestra. So. So I went from that, and then I went to Manhattan School of Music, which is another great conservatory, and then Juilliard, and then got a job in an orchestra, and then Canadian Brass. But it's still, for those that may not, may not know all the in-between, it was a big leap. It was a, not everybody gets a big break, and that was absolutely a big break. So um, I think that, you know, we, we before we hit record, we were talking about ego and all that. And I think that the hardest thing was suddenly I felt like I had to fill the shoes of all the unbelievable people that had come before me in the trumpet section. And in, in a lot of ways that sort of did have to happen. But the group was very quick to point out that that isn't the goal. Like that's not why you get hired. You don't get hired to sound, you know, to fill the shoes of somebody else. They really, like, we want you to sound like you. And I think the challenge was that as somebody that was 24, I didn't know exactly what that meant yet. And, um, and I'm sure a lot of conservatory level student players that are listening to this can relate, you know, or let's say you're, if you're in the dating scene, you know, especially if you're younger, the traditional advice is, oh, you just got to be yourself, which is true, but not necessarily good advice because a lot of the times when you're young, you don't know what that means. And you find out what that means by being in the hot seat and seeing how you react to certain situations and seeing what kind of things you say that people like and what kind of things you say that get awkward reactions or what kind of, and the same thing goes for music. So I, I had a lot of experimentation to do. And the reason it was high pressure is because these were really high profile events where the group was getting hired for high fees and big concert halls. Like you probably, if you're listening to this and you're not a musician, I'm sure you've heard of Carnegie Hall. We've played there many times and, 
you know, that's not the only famous concert hall, but there's many of them. And we, those are the kind of places we we would play. So as a kid, I was basically a kid and suddenly on the main stage having to discover my voice very quickly. So that's what the hot seat felt like to me. So fortunately, I felt technically I was pretty um, – I wouldn't say I was ready, but I was I was close. And it, yeah. I, it took me probably about three years to feel like I really own I could own it. But it took that long. I would say it took that long. Three years to not only just get your chops up in shape, but like to feel comfortable in your own skin in that role. Yeah. I hope it didn't sound like I wasn't uncomfortable, but it didn't feel comfortable until I was playing for three years. That's for three years from the three point on. It felt it was like pure fun. But it was it was like a high a high ratio of fear and fun to fun for the first three years. Well, I mean, everybody has to go through that, like you just yeah. described. Yeah, you, I, you were just uh, I don't know accelerated a little bit because of the yeah. really high expectations and the really high level of prestige and previous success of the group. Well, I'm interested in if you were to compare your perspective or your expectations or how you viewed your role not just as a member of one of the you know one of the best known classical music ensembles in the world compare that when you first got the job to now and especially like I said earlier you're stepping down specifically so you can focus on being a father and being right. you know being there for your wife and just being the best man that you can be. So I'm interested in knowing how has your perspective changed your expectations of yourself as a performer, musician, human being then versus now. Well, I mentioned how much just, you know, playing with the group changed my perspective because suddenly I wasn't only surrounded by specialists. It was a pretty good cross section of people it's it's worth pointing out to those that hadn't been to one of one of our shows. I, I did a, or especially early on. I did a lot of the um, not only marketing because like you know the shows would be marketed by the presenters, but you know we would you know try to build up our Facebook people and our newsletter and all that stuff. And I was constantly trying to figure out like, well, who is our audience? Like, who are these people? <laughs> you know, who are they? And if it's weird that like no matter where we go in the world, literally other countries, there was something they all had in common beyond just being our fans that seemed tangible. And yet to this day, I can't really put my finger on it. There's, it's not like we have an age demographic. There's, it's not like there's a, you know, it's not like male or female or any of that, any of the, only the traditional demographics. It seems like it's really, it spans all ages and races and all that and political beliefs and all that, which is really fascinating. That's not common, I think for most groups, especially in classical music Well, any group really. So, um, the perspective of getting what I felt I think was a pretty good cross section of society uh, was something that I'm going to benefit from forever. Um, but the, nothing changed my perspective more than having kids, because suddenly it wasn't just about me. It gave a meaning to things, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of glory in being a musician. And like I think a lot of orchestral musicians um, don't feel depending on their ultimate, their original motive, fully satisfied because you'll play a piece as a principal trumpet player that has some of the most glorious moments ever. And then you'll meet somebody in the street, you know, the next day that'll say, oh, I didn't even know there was trumpet in orchestra, you know? And you're like, man, I just like, 
I basically am on, I'm like Michael Jordan of the New York Philharmonic, you know, but you don't even know this trumpet in the orchestra. <laughs> I don't even know there was people that played basketball. It's like that. So it's hard to, if you were, if you were in it for the glory, even just a little bit, there really isn't that much of it in the orchestra because short of students that are going to admire what you do, the audience barely, you know, they're not listening to you that closely. So Canadian Brass wasn't like that. We were totally stars. We get to – we play for – we sign autographs for an hour after every show. You know, I, I, we would – depending on the, the, the country, we would sometimes leave and, you know, customs officers would recognize us. I mean it was, it was pretty amazing. I, never, I don't think I ever expected that type of um, publicity. Although I, I, looking back, I always wanted it. I wanted to be a soloist and I think that was probably part of the reason. And it's great. So it's a real ego blaster. And, um, what having kids though did is made me realize like, you know what, I'm going to miss that. That was awesome, but it's not the number one most important thing to me. And I don't know who's ever the most important thing to me. I think music was always number one. And then performing the love of just being on stage, performing that interaction was a, was always second, but I love both. Now it's like family is definitely first. Music is would be very close second. Not, I shouldn't say very close second, but it would be in that order. Family and then music itself. Like I'd be very happy just studying, performing, playing music completely in isolation. And then that love of performing is there too. So I, I just, I need sort of all three, but that that's the order that's changed. Where did family fall in when you first got the job? You didn't have a family then. I didn't. Yeah. When I thought family, I thought of my parents and my siblings and I'm, and I love my fam family and, and not everybody is as fortunate as I've been to have that closeness with them. But no matter what I say, my decisions show my priorities. You know, I, I was leaving home very early. I moved out when I was 17, not in a fit of rage, just because it was a good opportunity. I moved to Manhattan. I had my own apartment. I was still in high school. It was awesome. You know, <laughs> And so I, I always just, it was like obvious everyone, it was just sort of like an unwritten rule. Everyone knew that if some cool music opportunity came up, I was going to take it. I wasn't even going to ask permission from my family. That was just what it was. Getting married was a big change because suddenly I was like, you know, I can't just like ignore my wife, you know? Yeah. That <laughs> doesn't work out too well. It doesn't work out. And, and of course she was very supportive and she could always come. That was the difference. It wasn't really, it didn't really feel like I had to choose and she got to benefit even though it was challenging, but we, you know, we would have concerts in Hawaii. So then we'd go to Hawaii. I got to take her to Hawaii for free. That was pretty cool and other great places. But with, you know, with kids, um, first of all, they don't really enjoy traveling to Hawaii because they're babies and <laughs> it's expensive and it's crazy and you don't sleep on the plane. It, it, it's just not the same fun. So logistically it doesn't make sense. But, but the reality is it's like nothing gives me the joy. And I never would have known this without having kids. Um, like, but just being able to pick up my kids is hands down the greatest thing ever. I feel like it, as proud as I am of all the amazing success I've had in music, like I'm very fortunate, lucky, proud, all of those emotions. And they're really, really, really strong. And they were the most strong emotions I had until having kids. And it literally trumps that by so much that I, I don't even know how to put a number value to it. Thou what, a thousand times better? I don't know. It's that much better. Well, you know, I, I, I think I read a couple of months ago on ESPN. I, I, I'm a sports fan, so I, yeah, I use a lot of sports analogies. You're not a sports fan. That's fine. We forgive you. But um, I was reading a story about um, an NFL player 
And I don't know if you can relate to this, but basically his story was that, you know, he won the gig with, uh, I think, the Seattle Seahawks or something um, 10 years ago. He's right out of college, 22 years old, 20, maybe 23 years old. Now he's 32, 33. And he's talking about how his perspective has changed over the, over the years. Like um, when he first came into the NFL, you know, what a big deal. You know, you're playing in front of 60,000 people every every week and, you know, you got all that pressure to to basically win the win the approval of the coaches and, and whatever. But now he's 32, 33. He's married. He's got a couple of kids. And he's just saying after a while, it just becomes a battle for survival. And he's not he's not he's not thinking about the the challenge of. I mean, you get the gig in the NFL, and then you have to win the gig in the NFL, just like a musician, right? You get the gig, and then you've got to win. You got to win your section mates over, the music director over. You got you got to win the gig after you get it. And it's kind of like that in 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 the NFL. And he's just saying, after ten years, man, it's just like it's just a matter of survival. I'm not I'm not worried about the glory anymore. I'm just I'm just worried about not getting killed. I, I wonder if you can relate to that at all. Yeah, I, can, I mean, I think it's it's less dangerous, so I'm not worried about I, it's not survival in the same sense. But yeah. I mean, when you when you see somebody do something like a, like an NFL athlete, like a star athlete or a star musician or or anybody that's some, doing something on the best of their of, of their of their field anything, science, whatever it is, they are likely putting basically 100% into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and something else has to suffer. If you're, if you're single and young and you're a student and you, want, and you aspire to goals like that, that's awesome. And I, 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 I've, I've been that person and it was so worth it to experience life at that depth because you – get out of life and individual moments of life what you put into it you know so the glory to to, to speak of the glory yeah playing for 60,000 people most people don't know what that's like I've never played for 60,000 people but I've played for 20,000 people and it was like "Mm, you feel invincible it's amazing where where did you play for 20,000 people we played for you know it wasn't full I might be pushing it but it was huge (laughs) as a trumpet player (laughs) I was supposed to play for twenty thousand people. You know, it was it was at the Key Arena in Seattle. Oh. We played for it was like a Lions Club meeting, so we played um, a mini concert there. We've played more often. It was for crowds. You know, our normal crowd size would probably be about one to three thousand, but for a couple of shows, we played for like seven to ten thousand people, and that's like that's a that is. My, I, I, if we could, if we only played shows for people for like 10 to 30,000 people, I don't know, that might've been a different, it would have been different somehow. I don't know what it would be different, but it'd be different. It's a, it's a different thrill. Not everyone likes that. I love it. And, um, but it takes so much work for 30,000 people. You know, imagine this guy that's on the, on the, in the NFL to be somebody that 30,000 people want to pay money to go see that something has to give and you become more aware that you have to decide if you're really willing to put that much into it, if the glory is worth it. And for some people it is. And that's, I'm not going to judge them. I mean, if you're, 
Chance the Rapper, I think a couple of weeks ago, announced that he was canceling tours because he had a, a second kid. And I was I was blown away because he made a big deal about it. I mean, these are people that paid hundreds of dollars for a ticket and, you know, probably arena type places. And, you know, I'm sure all the presenters that had all these shows lined up, or all the promoters are not happy. They don't care how they had a kid, you know, there's a lot of money on the line for that stuff. But he was like, well, sorry, you know, I missed a week of my daughter's, you know, second week of life. And I missed some of the major milestones and I'm never going to get those back. So I'm not going to let that happen. And I, it was, it was like on the news, you know, that he chanced the rapper did that. And I thought that was so cool. And I think times are changing. I think that's more acceptable. Fans are like, wow, he's a human being, but like Frank Sinatra, I mean, and I'm not an expert at his life, but man, they would go on tour for months in another country. Now you don't really have to do that because planes are bad or, or for some reason, but still, you know, he dedicated everything and he, he reaped the rewards. He was a star and he'll go in the history books. He's in the history books. But so I, I, I think that what, what I can relate to is that you start to you just sort of don't necessarily want to put that first. Yeah. So and it's not forever. I, I imagine I'll, maybe I'll want to tour forever and do whatever I can to figure out how to be in front of 30,000 people. I, I think that I, I might want that, but maybe I'll change around. I have no idea. But all I know is that right now I, I want, you know, I'm sad that right now I'm in Alabama without my kids because at least it's only for three days though. What do you plan for the concert? The big piece is Brahms second symphony. Okay. So it's a to- totally different stress by the way. So okay. And brass show as the star you get to have your personality shine. You get to choose the pieces. You get to phrase it in the way that makes you look and sound the best. And it's a now the conductor's the boss. I'm playing one tiny thing and I mostly sit there. And it's either like you ruin it or you don't get noticed. You know, and <laughs> I, I sympathize with orchestral trumpet players because it's like, that's it. There's very few pieces where you're the star. And we've played those too, like Mahler Symphony. And we've played Mahler 5 here before. And then it's pressure, but it's like, yo, but you get to play, play, play. And then is Brahms too, where you're that person in the background that has to play something that's very hard and scary, but you don't notice it unless it gets destroyed. You either screw it up or you're ignored. Or you're ignored. But the music is so glorious that it's so worth it. Was there a moment where you, it just hits you like, okay, it's time to leave Canadian Brass? Um... I think it, it, it kind of came to a point. I'm, I'm making this sound like that I've been pondering it like in a bad way. I mean, I it, I would come back from tours and be like, oh, my God, that was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And then like we would have a couple of weeks at home and I'd be like, oh, my God, I can't believe I have to leave town for three mm-hmm. weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was that. And those the, the extremes of the emotions were really, really wearing on me. And I don't think I even really admitted it because then I'd go on tour and it was like, this is awesome. And then I'd come home and talk about how great it was. And I'd see that my wife's eyes are bloodshot and be like, oh, I don't really want to hear about how much fun you had for the last three weeks because, you know. She's like, that's nice, honey. Can you take out the trash? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, oh, man, I just signed like 80 autographs. Yeah, exactly. And it's but um, yeah, it's not fair. It wasn't fair to her and it wasn't fair to them. And. So I think that – and then, of course, and this is not just about me. I mean, Brandon Ridenour, who got me the job in the Canadian Brass 10 years ago, is at a point in his life where he's been developing his own solo projects with 
ton of success. He's extremely talented. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows he's a ridiculous trumpet player. Yeah, he's wonderful. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And he is in the point of his life that we both were in when we were both in the group together, where he is going to give the group 100%. Like, that's his project right now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a disservice to our fans to not have him doing that. So, and the last thing I want to do is get in the way of that momentum. So, I don't think I would have really let it gotten, get in the way, but I think I was coming to a point mm-hmm. where I was finally admitting that I was going to have to choose. And so I'm, ex- I'm so excited for the, for the fans to have Brandon back. I mean, he's amazing. He really is truly amazing. One of the most talented people I know. And it's just sort of cool to have it all come full circle. Well, Chris Coletti is my guest. I'm going to have um, everything we talked about. I, we mentioned a couple of videos. I'm going to have it at jamesnewcomb.io slash chris jamesnewcomb.io slash chris c-h-r-i-s chris you have given us a lot to think about as always deep thinker and i appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your experiences with juilliard and the canadian brass and being a husband a father and uh i get the impression that you're at peace with your decision very much so i um yeah i i should mention that I'm, I, uh, a lot of my students, so I teach at Ithaca College, and that's another responsibility that I wanted to be faithful to. Um, by my, one of my trumpet students came up to me after I wrote that email that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and said, Yeah, I want to congratulate you on, be the first to congratulate you on your retirement. And I was retirement. like, Retirement. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> However, <laughs> I like the way that sounds. I like thinking that I just, you know, like an athlete, I'm retiring at 34, but yeah, I'm, I'm not, not quite retiring. And, and I'm also not, um, never going to perform again. I have, I have tons of concerts coming up, um, including some, I have a bunch of solo projects that have just been on the back burner a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. And so keep an eye out for those. Nice. I nice. do single out that if you want to check out, it's, it's sort of like I'm new to to doing all this and doing it through CD baby. So it's sort of probably not the easiest thing to find, although it is on my blog. It's trumpet Chris blog. Yeah.com. And if you go on, I have a lot of, um, articles on there, but the, the single is easy to find if it's on there. It's a really cool piece by Nils Fromm. He's a German musician. He kind of fits in the ambient slash kind of classical class. You know, it's hard to kind of pin, um, pigeonhole him but i just transcribed it i thought it was beautiful before my first son was born he seemed to react positively to the piece in the womb so i transcribed it for him so it was kind of cool to finally record it so i'm actually going to do a music video for that eventually so wow trumpetchrisblog.com yeah well man we got to do this again sometime let's do it and uh you're just the word just came to me balance like you're stepping away from this great gig, but you've got all these other things that um, probably are going to be just as fulfilling at the end of the day, and you've still got attention to your wife and your kids and everything. So I have to say congratulations. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a lucky guy. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Nucambio. There are new stories published on this podcast every single day, so go to checkoutmypodcast.com to subscribe have a new story delivered to your favorite podcast platform every single day. Check out mypodcast.com. I've been doing this podcasting thing for quite a while. I've discovered what works, what doesn't work, and I like to promote the things that do work to listeners of my show. And 
I do earn a commission every time that someone purchases something from my website. I think I'm required by the government to let people know that, but there it is. So again, thanks for listening to the show, and we'll catch you on the flip side.